Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to, to be with you today. This is going to be, a, I think, a really uh, fantastic conversation. I'm going to bring on uh, a good friend of mine, Corey Reese. Corey, how are you doing today? Caught so you good. A, of a drink there. How are you doing, Bill? I'm, I'm doing so good. And uh, man, there's been so much interaction lately where your name has come up. I was just talking to you off the air. We interviewed Kimber Dutton, who's started a, a new and really cool podcast where she's really helping women uh, primarily, but I think humans in general, uh, kind of reclaim themselves. And um, I think it's Just Be Your Bad Self, uh, the podcast. And she interviewed you. And then Brittany Hartley and I had her on the Almost Awakened podcast, and your name came up there. And Brittany, not knowing you and I were friends, said, we got to have this Corey Reese guy on. And so... I said, I said, I'm actually interviewing Corey uh, tomorrow, and uh, I'm sure that he'll be happy to come on with the two of us and have a conversation. And, and I let her know that you and I had done an interview with Mikkel back in the day on Almost yeah. Awakened as well. Yeah. And uh, so first, let me give uh, you a chance to just give like a brief bio of yourself, give people kind of your credentials, let people know what you're doing, and then we'll talk about this list uh, how this list came about, and then we'll dive into it. Um, does that sound good? That sounds awesome. Um, yeah, I, I've been a social worker for about 20 years now. I have some background in working in like residential teen treatment. Um, I've been in medical social work for a really long time. Um, I think for around 17 years doing like dialysis, working with dialysis patients. And then I also have a private practice where I see clients for therapy, um, individual and group therapy. So I, um, yeah, I've got kind of a, a broad range of experience in a different, a bunch of different areas. Yeah. And you're, and you're well known for other things. You are an, uh, what's the full name? An ultra marathon, <laughs> ultra runner? marathon runner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're an author of several books. Yep. Yeah, uh, books that have done books. quite well. Yeah. And and so folks, if, if they do a little Google search for Corey Reese, uh, I think you're the first Corey Reese that comes up. So, um, <laughs> so interesting. I, I wanted to get, you know, maybe fill us in a little bit about uh, how, how you got into, or at least um, started to help people who were dealing with faith crises in Southern Utah, which is again, primarily a Mormon community. And so the folks that you're helping are primarily people who are deconstructing Mormonism uh, mm -hmm. or or disaffected in some way from it. And you really have, in the last several months for sure, made a major attempt to be kind of an outreach to, to those folks. Yeah, my wife and I left the church, I think a little more than four years ago. and And what I've noticed since then is that a lot of people can step away from the church or um, go through like questioning their faith or, or however that looks. And they, they can navigate that. Okay. With maybe a spouse or friends and, and they can, they can kind of figure stuff out. It, it might take some time and effort and work, but they they can get through it. And then there's some people who really hit a lot of roadblocks. There's, they, they run into, a lot of the depression or grief, but they, they have huge impacts from extended family. And those people I think need extra, some extra help with therapy. And so 
I, I'm kind of fortunate to have um, been on the side of a total believing, active, faithful member, and then to be at this point where I'm I'm no longer a member, and and I've experienced that that process, and then also with the background in therapy, I just feel like this is this is my passion to help people to help those people who might just need a little bit of extra help. Yeah, yeah. And so I know that you've been both one-on-one as well as group settings working with folks who are really just in that that space of time where things are just deeply difficult. It's a strange thing, right? Like Mormonism does this thing where it claims that everybody who steps away ends up miserable and broken and less than. And the reality is that most people who leave after some time has passed, they report things being much better, they being improved from when they were in. And yet the church is right. There is a gap of time um, shortly thereafter, as you start deconstructing uh, and become disaffected, where things are really hard. And there's reasons for that. And we're going to get into those today. But um, would you mind spending a moment? Uh, so this list that we're about to go through, will you explain how you came about getting this list and uh, what it is exactly that that this list contains that we can, I don't mean item by item, but like generally speaking, what this list is so that folks can get a feel of kind of the direction we're going. Yeah. I did a eight week faith transition um, group that just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago. And so I, the first day of the first, the first day of the group, I asked them um, what, what are the main struggles that they're experiencing that led to them seeking therapy? So it, it kind of gave me just a, an overall picture of what, what roadblocks people are hitting and, and, to the point where they're seeking out therapy. Um, yeah. And I would say that these are, these are responses that I got from the group setting, but they're consistent with what I see in individual sessions too, where people are seeking therapy. Yeah. And, and as I went over the list over the last few days, kind of thinking about our conversation that was coming up, these all hit home very much. These are the issues. And, and as you're pointing out, they're self-reported. So it's not like we're going, hey, this is what a person in faith crisis experiences. Right. Rather, this is what these folks say they're experiencing personally. And, and I want other folks to know uh, one little thing I want to mention too, which is uh, some of us are very heady. We, we um, negotiate ourselves throughout the, through our life uh, and the world around us by being inside our head and being analytical. Some folks are very much in their heart and some folks are very much in their gut. For instance, we did an Enneagram conversation a few weeks ago and uh, the nine personality types are divided into three sections, people who kind of operate through their gut, heart, and mind. And that seems to be true as I as I see people. I, I would just note if everyone listening today could at least try to kind of sense into their gut as we talk about these things, I think it'll help you um, better connect with the struggles that folks are having um, because there are analytical reasons for why things don't add up in a particular religious system. There are emotional reasons, but there's this kind of gut intuition that's also connected to emotion um, that I think will help folks to kind of sit with some of the stuff that's talked about today. So with that, let's jump into these. 
Um, why don't you tell us the first one and let's have a let's have a short conversation around each of these. Okay, sure. So the first one that someone mentioned was how difficult it's been losing community. So this person said that some friends, neighbors, and family members don't talk to me anymore. And um, I, I hear that pretty consistently from people. And um, I guess as, a, as an active member, I would have found that one maybe hard to believe. Like, I, I can't imagine that I would just not talk to my neighbor anymore. But that isn't always what people are experiencing. There really is a genuine loss of community. And um, a lot of a lot of people say that um, suddenly it kind of feels like there's a, a wedge in between friendships sometimes where there's, there's an elephant in the room that people don't really want to talk about. And so it just starts to feel kind of tense or awkward. Yeah. I, I, with each of these things, I made some notes and some of these, I, I wanted to word um, exactly a certain way. And so I actually wrote these down. And here's what I wrote about that first one. I said, high demand fundamentalist religions do something really unhealthy. They intertwine their religious system with a person's community in a way that outsiders are distanced and insiders are your closest friends. It feels so right on the front end, but when you no longer believe what that community believes, your parents and siblings who are also believers put distance because you're now the apostate. Your friends put distance. Your spouse, um, my experience has been about 50% of marriages deeply struggle that both aren't kind of exiting at the same time and one's trying to uh, anchor into the church while the other one's kind of deconstructing. So I put your spouse is about 50% likely to put distance. Your kids put distance. And for many whose brain has told them the church isn't true, they have all of their support system and the people they love putting distance between uh, between them. And, and so it, it seems as though if I were a Baptist and I left the Baptist church, I would, and, and went over to the Methodist church, I think everybody would still be pretty friendly and almost probably the same as it was before I left. Um, obviously, I'm not going to be attending there, but if I ran into somebody at the grocery store or something, there would be not an awkwardness. And in high demand fundamentalist religions, it seems like the, the, the relationships that a human being has with other human beings that is part of the normal human experience the system deeply intertwines uh, th those relationships to everybody fitting a mold and fitting in the box and being part of that system and conforming. And, and that seems to be um, great when things are working, but when someone's beliefs change, it really seems to almost uh, maybe practically be toxic. Any thoughts there? Um. I mean, I, I, I see that. I, I see that in the, in the people that I talk to and um, I've certainly felt that myself at times. And I mean, I know, I know friends who have their, their spouse has divorced them because they no longer believe in the church. And I mean, they're losing core relationships just, just because of, a shift in their beliefs and 
Um, yeah, it, it's, it's challenging. I mean, one of the things that I always valued in the church was feeling kind of a sense of community and, um, I don't know, it, there was some comfort knowing, I mean, one time my wife fell and broke both of her elbows and it, she could not do anything. And, and the ward was so awesome to bring, bring meals and just help out. And I, I appreciated that so much. And I feared, I feared losing that, um, when I stepped away from the church and, uh, thankfully came to find out that there's, there's also such a source of support outside of the church too, that the church doesn't own that, um, sense of community and, and support. But initially first, first stepping away, it can just feel like you're stepping off a cliff into thin air while you're working on rebuilding those new relationships. It's, it's really, really tough. Yeah. And, and some of this is natural, right? Like if you're a believer, the church is everything that's good in your life. It's everything that is positive. It's, it's what you're, how you're serving your community and it's how you are finding value. It's how you find meaning. And yet the person who's left is, um, the church is something negative to them. So anytime you come in to share the same space and try to reconnect as loving family, the reality is you almost can't talk about anything that's important to you because it's going to be hurtful and upsetting to the other side. Um, and so some of it is just, I think, very natural. You can, there's not much we can do about it. Yeah. Um, re some relationships are going to be strained. And specifically, if somebody feels a loyalty to their system and that loyalty trumps their relationship, um, it, I think in those instances, it can be set up for much worse. Mm -hmm. um, what's the second one we've got here? Second one I put down is, um, I, I, I've heard this commonly, um, debating whether or not to stay in the church to keep family happy. So sometimes that's um, debating whether or not to stay in the church to stay married. Um, sometimes it's debating whether or not to stay in so that they can see their child get married in the temple. Um, fears of parents um, disowning them or ex worrying about disappointing family. And so I think it's totally understandable to ask yourself the question, do I really want to do this? Is, yeah. is it, is it worth it? Because you know what you could potentially lose from making this choice. Yeah. Um, it seems as though anytime you compromise what you want to be in order to keep other people happy or comfortable, or even to maintain a relationship, you're giving up something that's going to hurt. Like that's going to be a heavy thing to do. And so when folks say, you know, when, when the folks you're helping say, you know, I'm debating whether or not to stay in the church to keep family happy. What they're also saying is that at the expense of me having more misery, me being in more pain, me having uh, a larger burden to carry, do, do I carry a larger burden so someone else can carry less? And 
often in these moments where we're compromising our authenticity, uh, it feels like it's taking a heavy toll. And in fact, it is. 100%. So my experience personally was once, once the bubble popped, once my belief in the church crumbled, I don't think you can put that bubble back together. So I, I really wanted to, um, I don't know. I, I tried to keep going to church after, after my faith crisis. And I just, I just saw, I, I saw all the holes. I, I saw the, the, the areas where my faith had crumbled and I just couldn't, I couldn't put that bubble back together again. And so when people have that happen and yet they still are going to church and doing all the things to keep people happy, it creates a huge emotional toll because they're, they're constantly being confronted with things that go against their beliefs or things that they feel like they're not hearing the whole story on. Um, and the bottom line is that it, it puts people in a position of having to live inauthentically. Yeah. Yep. What's the next one here, my friend? Um, let me... Okay. The next one, um, struggling with appearances, pressure to be perfect and no longer looking perfect to extended family. Um, I think that that issue of perfectionism comes up quite a bit. And if, if you choose to step away from the church, then, you're you're kind of abandoning that quote unquote perfect view that you're putting out to others. Yeah, there's a there's a thing in high there's a thing throughout life, but there's a thing in high demand fundamentalist religions called costly signaling. And it's this idea that when you belong to a a, a very dogmatic rigid group, there are all these um acceptable and encouraged uh, modes of behavior that signal that we are believing members of the church. We fit in the box that, that Mormonism says we need to fit in so that we can all be seen by the rest of the community as being, you know, being believing Mormons. And um, th this idea of, of signaling that to each other to keep up appearances. So when you and I were believing and we we're active, we'd get up on Sunday morning, we'd throw a white shirt on and a tie. Our wives would get in dresses. Our kids would be uh, dressed up in their Sunday best, quote unquote. And we'd all go to church and all the lessons were designed to keep us from ever really sharing with each other how hard life is. Our job was to smile at each other and pretend everything is good. And so the couple and their kids in the pews to my right and the couple and their kids in the pew to my left, everybody appears to be happy and hitting it out of the park. Their clothes are clean. Their jacket looks nice. The dress is beautiful. Kids are smiling. And, and what I perceived was I was the only one who was failing. And what you realize as time goes on, because, because the system from the, again, I was a convert, but for most people who are born into the church, you spend a lifetime pretending in church everything is okay. And yeah. there's never lessons designed to ask you about the hard parts of life. And, and so even when you go to the next door to knock on your neighbor's door and to share a Book of Mormon with them and to share the gospel with them, you do so from the standpoint that you know that you have to portray Mormonism as this really awesome thing. 
And there really isn't any safe space to go like, yeah, it's not all perfect. It's not all beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and so we are taught from, from the very beginning to put up these appearances. Um, and so when you deconstruct it and you step out, now you have that going, but you also have this other thing, which is that Mormonism doesn't tell one single positive story about people who leave. And it does have dozens of negative stories. And some of them are, you know, chafe among the wheat, tears among the wheat, uh, lazy learner, uh, apostate, um, faithless, um, wanting to sin. Uh, and there's, you know, a bunch more. And so then you get out of the church and you, you realize that your family has all of these negative labels of identity that they are taught to apply to you. And you're somehow scratching and clawing to try to still be acceptable. And so there's a lot of pressure on somebody to continue to pretend to look the part because living your own life outside of the Mormon construct, you know, it comes with judgment from your family and friends. Yeah. Something that just hit me so hard a few years ago, I was at a social work conference. It was a, a suicide prevention workshop and the speaker was incredible. She actually had had a suicide attempt. She shot herself and miraculously somehow ended up living. And so she was talking to us and, and said, and this, this phrase stuck out to me so much. She said, here in Utah, we live in a culture of toxic perfectionism. And, and it was the first time that I had heard that phrase. And um, I just think that it, it really is toxic to, to put, to, I don't know, to feel like you have to put out that, that view that you've got all your stuff together, nothing's hard. Um, don't, don't question things, don't show the stuff that's messy um it it avoids the reality that sometimes life is messy or hard or difficult and then um exactly like you said once you step away and and you you remove that that view that others have of of you being perfect it's it's hard yeah and you know maybe you start doing things or at least you want to do things, say, grab a cup of coffee. Maybe you want to go out and have a, a beer uh, or a drink with friends on Friday or Saturday night. Maybe you want to show up in your world a little different than what Mormonism uh, had as a prescribed way of doing things. It, it becomes really obvious that your family is going to see you as having fallen off the track when in reality, you're just living a life that the rest of the 99.9% .9 of human population are generally doing anyway. Mm -hmm. And and so it's easy when you leave Mormonism to have the your mode of behavior, which is now normal, be labeled by people inside as being broken. And, and so there's got to be fear all over the place of like, you know, my dad's going to think that I'm some vile person when in reality, I'm just living a normal life now. Whereas before I wasn't, um, yeah. I, th I, th I think it's crazy 
you know, people go like, come on, is Mormonism really a cult? And I go, guys, they, and, and again, you know, I'll stay away from the word if you want me to, and you can distance yourself from it if you want, but it tells me what underwear to wear. And it tells me what decibel I can laugh at. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's just the beginning of all the control mechanisms. And so suddenly you're out of the church and you're laughing too hard and you're wearing normal underwear and, and you're, you're having a drink on Friday night and you're, um, it, it just, it just becomes so easy for the insiders, which are such a small portion of the human population to, to label you as bad mm-hmm. and is somehow fallen when you're just, you really just kind of jumped into a normal life. Right. Right. Yeah. And that What's, actually oh, goes please. along with the next one. So like the, the normal things people do. So, um, someone said, I don't know how to do simple things that the rest of the world knows how to do. Like, I mean, you, you mentioned like, go buy underwear. Like I've, <laughs> I remember like, okay, how yeah. do I do this? What, what do I do? Th- or things like navigate alcohol use or ordering coffee. Um, some people have anger about not knowing how to do simple things that the the rest of the world knows how to do, but we've been kind of sheltered in those areas. Yeah. How does one as a 40 something year old order coffee for the first time? Um, some of this has to be over. It's these really tiny things and they have to be overwhelming to these folks. Yeah, they are. Um, I, I did an episode once talking about coffee because I, I wanted to kind of give somebody something, you know, and my two cents would be, you know, as we're trying to talk about these things where we can maybe offer some advice, I would say, if you want to know how to, do you drink coffee, Corey? I do. Yeah, me too. I love it. My, it's an important part of my morning. <laughs> Same. Um, my wife thinks it's an addiction because I tell her I have to have it but not have to have it like, oh my gosh, I got to have it. Uh-huh. It's like every time I have it, my mornings are better than the days I don't. Uh-huh. Why Why wouldn't I have it? Uh-huh. And, and so I would just say to folks, like, if you're wanting to navigate some of these things, reach, if you have friends that are out, talk to them, obviously, you're probably already doing that. If you're missing some of that community, um, reach out to me, reach out to Corey, um, sure. reach out to folks that you trust, have your best interest at heart. And ask them how they navigate these things. And it may feel embarrassing because you're naive to how to do it. But the reality is that's not your fault. Yeah. And, and if you, if someone reached out to me as a, if a 55 year old man reached out to me and said, Hey, Bill, I'm wanting to order coffee. I would, I wouldn't think that's funny. Like we might have a chuckle, but not in the way that that person would feel shame over. No. Right. No. So we, we should be willing to help folks and folks, are going to have to ask because this system unfortunately held you back from experiencing those things in life. I was just watching a comedy special. I think the guy's name was Nate Berganzi. I was watching it a few nights ago and he talked about learning how to drink coffee later in life. And he said it was just so terrifying at Starbucks. I could get up to the counter and not know what to do and be so scared. And so he talked about this time that he went up and said, I I don't know, I'll take coffee with cream. And the person across the counter said coffee with cream and the guy said yeah I'll take coffee with cream and she said coffee with cream and he's like where's the miscommunication so 
he's like, I, I don't know where, where are we not on the same page here? So like two minutes later, she put the, his drink on the counter and, and it was coffee with whipped cream. So, so somehow he had miscommunicated what he wanted and got coffee with whipped cream instead of coffee with cream. So he just talked about how, how daunting it is and how sometimes you can end up with whipped cream on your coffee. So it's, yeah. it's scary to do those little things. There's, there's been so many times that I've walked into a Starbucks in, in the front end of having left Mormonism and I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by the menu. Like what's a, what's a Frappuccino? Yeah. <laughs> what's a mocha? What's, what's a, you know, What's a cold press coffee versus uh-huh. a cold brew? I, I don't know. Yeah. And and so you almost like you, the lines building up behind you and you don't have a clue what you're doing. Um, my first time dipping into alcohol, I ordered uh, wine in a box from a company, which is you get the the shittiest bat, you know, worst <laughs> wines possible, and you know, get twelve in a box, and now you're stuck trying to figure out how you're going to drink these things. So we would just give them away to. Friends like you, and we'd come over for a party or something just to get rid of them um, because they were horrible. And and so folks don't know how to navigate leaning into figuring out what their taste is in alcohol, uh, yeah. leaning into what how they want their coffee to be. Um, I wasn't even ready the first time I, I, I drank coffee as a, as a teenager a little bit. And then I jumped back in as an adult on the outside of this faith deconstruction, and I get a cup of coffee. And my heart starts racing, um, have bathroom issues, which anybody who's started drinking coffee realizes. And you're not ready to navigate that. And you need somebody to help you because it's going to take a month or two before you kind of get acclimated. Yeah. And and then in the course of getting acclimated, on the other side of that is pure joy and bliss, right? Yep. It's pretty great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Um, I want to read something here. This was in the previous one, cause we're tying these two together. And, and I think that's really, really good to do. Um, in, in regards to appearances, in regards to trying new things, believing Mormons have taught deeply who is in their tribe and who is out to be an insider. One must appear to be inside a box. One must avoid certain outward signals. One must give certain outward signals. One must look the part. Once you no longer believe in a code of behaviors or a set of beliefs to continue pretending to fit that mold and continue to give those signals while one's mind no longer wants to live that way. Such comes with anxiety, stress, depression, frustration, sadness. And on top of that additional trauma, anytime you're pretending to be what others need you to be, and you don't feel the freedom and safety to be yourself, it's going to come with hurt and pain. And some of that's going to sit inside you and need some extra work to kind of process it. I wrote here, Mormonism is an orientation to the world that only 0.1% of people adhere to or believe. And what I'm saying there is that 0.2% of the human population on the planet is Mormon. The reality, though, is that only about a third of those folks actually go to church. So we know that the actual number of people who um, are in Mormonism, they believe it, they're trying to live it, they have faith in it, they believe that these rules and behaviors are on some degree uh, what God wants us to be and do, it's 0.1% of the world. And humans are 
constantly having being oriented to the world by the systems around them and unhealthy systems jump in immediately and orient us to the world around us in very unhealthy ways so that when we step away we don't realize that we're leaving this very narrow limited limited margin like margin way of seeing the world and and that the world at large is really the way the world at large is operating and it takes us a lot of time to kind of reorient ourselves to kind of figure out our identity what's going on in the world how the world works I don't necessarily need to do this thing anymore. Oh, now I need to do this other thing. It really is kind of daunting, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. It's it's uh, it's it can feel very overwhelming. Um and then let's see here. Um and in regards to like trying the new things, when when you grow up in a high demand fundamentalist religion, you're taught a systemic way of doing things. I talked about the orientation you're told how to interpret your emotions, your thoughts, your behaviors. You're told how to interpret the behaviors of others. It's imposed on you what makes a good person and what makes a bad person. And then one day you come to the realization that not only was the system that taught you those things not true, but all the things they taught you, uh, I should say that way, many of the things they taught you weren't a healthy orientation towards the outside or inside world, talking about what's going on inside of you. You have to reorient yourself on a million different things. Where is your place in the world? Um, it is daunting and overwhelming. And again, I, I note that Mormonism is this small lens that very few people see the world through, but it envelops all of you when you're believing and you're in. It is the God's kingdom on earth. It is the one true and only living church upon the earth. It is the path to salvation. And so it really is hard to kind of reorient yourself, which is what these folks who were willing to share with you all this hard stuff. It's, it's really the battle they're trying to have is trying to reorient themselves to this new world. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we see the world from this one lens for our, our whole lives until yeah. 20, 30, 40, 50. And then when that lens cracks, it's, it's, I don't know, like just, you're you're kind of forced to see the world through a new lens and um i i think a lot of people realize that their their lens before was kind of limited yeah yeah totally what's the next one um okay this is a huge one how to deal with guilt tripping and shaming from the family so yeah. um i mean i guess I guess what really bothers me is the lack of boundaries that I see a lot of times where I, I just don't feel like it's really a parent's role to chastise their grown adult child for wearing a tank top or, or having a coffee maker on the counter that, that just feels like it's crossing boundaries that, that parents shouldn't be crossing, but I don't know. It, it, I think a lot of times people just feel like they want to save the, the lost sheep. And, and sometimes that shows up as guilt or shame. And I think that maybe the intention is good to try and return them to the fold. But a lot of times the way it comes across just is so, so damaging to the relationship. 
you're muted, Bill. Thank you. I, I put here the system you previously belonged to imposed mechanisms that allowed us to shame each other, to manipulate each other into right behavior and right thought. The system also creates a thousand unhealthy boundaries and imposes these as normal. When people leave, they often wake up to the unhealthy system's mechanisms. They now see shame for what it is, often an unhealthy tool to manipulate people into conforming. Trying to maintain a relationship where one, is, where one no longer wants to be manipulated with people they love who still believe such manipulation is appropriate can be extremely difficult. How do you help your family come to grips with no longer fitting in their faith systems box? And I've experienced this myself. I, people often go, Bill, you're so brave. You go on and you do these podcasts and you, you expose Mormonism for its unhealthiness. And I say, no, 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 that's not really real. Like I'm, I'm privileged. My, my wife and my children left right with me. I'm a convert. So I don't have any parents to worry about. I don't have any other extended family, no siblings to worry about. Um, it was easy for me. And uh, even with that said, I have uh, family on my wife's side that this has been absolutely uh, a big deal to overcome this. We've had times where anytime I would be like, hey, this is my problem with uh, the thing you're saying, and I have a different perspective. Anytime I would come into the space and act as though my point of view had as much privilege as their point of view. Somebody immediately oversteps the line of healthy behavior and tries to put me in my place. And the reality is that for whatever reason, the believers get to continue to talk about the things of belief, their callings and the prophet and general conference. And the folks of us who step away don't really get to say the same kinds of things from our point of view. And, and it, it feels horrible because every time you do, somebody seems to step in and want to shame you or manipulate you back into being what they think you're supposed to be. So as you're pointing out, nobody should ever go into someone's home, even if that person is your child because they're now an adult and say, you shouldn't have a coffee maker. Like only through this tiny lens of Mormonism, does that make any sense at all? And so there has to be, as you pointed out boundaries, which I think we'll get to here in a moment, but the solution for the folks who are struggling is you have to start setting boundaries. And that's a whole nother thing. And that also comes with risk uh, and reward. It comes with fear. It comes with uh, the risk of, um, rejection. It comes with uh, the risk of having additional shame come in. It has the risk of hurting relationships, but it really is, it's, it is the healthy mechanism by which we notify people that they cannot act unhealthy in our personal space. Yeah. Um, any thoughts there from you? Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it really does boil down to boundaries. What I noticed in my own personal experience, and I, I have seen this consistently with others. Um, when my wife and I went and talked to our bishop for the first time and told him about our choice to step away, um, one of the one of the things that got brought up was how we were basically putting our eternal family 
at in jeopardy. Like we were kind of we were betraying our covenants, and to think about think about the kids, like we're we're jeopardizing their their eternal salvation too. And um, some and one of our family members. I mean, I mean, just to go back to that for a second. That's that's seriously unhealthy and manipulative. And then um, one family member said, "I, I just think you're you're making a big mistake. Let me issue you a challenge to, to read the scriptures every day and and pray every day." And, and we said, "I assure you, we we have done those things. We wanted the church to be true. We didn't want to be doing this. This is." This is this is very difficult what we're going through. We we wanted we were looking for every reason to find the church to be true and couldn't. So so trying to guilt us into doing more of those things, we we were already doing those and and it didn't work. I, I think it's rooted in the again, the church doesn't give any positive story of why someone might leave and it would be good for them. And members sense that, right? They're given these stories about Thomas Marsh left over milk strippings and Simon's writer left because his name was spelled wrong. And those are just nonsensical stories. They're absurd. When you dive into the history, those, those two individuals specifically, and really any other story where we do this, the reasons people leave is much more complex. It's, it's much uh, bigger than any one issue. And it sure as hell isn't a simple story that my name was spelled wrong. And, but the church wants to simplify those stories and it wants to attribute the reasons. And, and what ends up happening is that members don't have any way to go, oh, like you left over history. That's right. Our history is a problematic. Our history has contradictions. Instead, it allows them to feel safe and comfortable by telling uh, the person deconstructing that something's wrong with them. Because if something's not wrong with the person, then something might be wrong with the religion. And, and if folks feel that, suddenly the rabbit hole is right there in front of them. Yep. Yeah. It's easier um, to blame the person. Yeah. Because my church can't be the problem. Right. Yeah. Um, what's the next one, my friend? Um, let's see. Okay. The, uh, like we talked about needing to learn how to set boundaries because I've never learned how to in the past. So some of the specific examples with that, like, I don't know, bishops interviews where you're asked very personal questions that normally would not be asked by say an adult when you're a teenager, but, but we aren't taught boundaries to be able to say, actually, I don't want to, that's, that's not, your business. I don't want to talk about that. Or, um, I don't know. I mean, I've sat through lots of ward councils where, um, really personal stuff is talked about with people in the ward that I, I feel like may have been inappropriate, but there just wasn't recognition of boundaries, what, what that even means. And then, so that's kind of a broader picture, but then just, um, if you bring it in, just, I mean, a lot of times it's boundaries with parents or, or spouse that we just, we just haven't really been given good role models on what that means, how to do it, how it shows up. It's, 
it's really difficult. And then say you're a 40 year old person leaving the church and, and your parents have been used to a certain way for 40 years where the, the boundaries are very permeable. And then you suddenly set firm, clear boundaries. That's difficult for, for the receiving end. Parents don't like that or extended family or friends that you haven't had boundaries with before that you suddenly set boundaries with now. It kind of throws them for a loop when you haven't had those boundaries before. Yeah. Going back to a situation I had with my in-laws over the last year, um, I, I had a member on my wife's side of the family uh, believing very much entrenched in Mormonism. And we were in this public space, shared space. And I was just having a friendly conversation with old ward members. And they were asking, like, you tell us your life, we'll be uncomfortable. We'll tell you our life. We'll hope you can sit with being uncomfortable and we'll just love each other, which was, I thought, the healthiest way to do it, right? Yeah. And he he started uh, kind of eavesdropping. And uh, it got to the point where he finally butts in and tries to put me in my place that I don't have a right to tell anybody my story because I'm I'm an antichrist. I'm somebody who takes people away from the gospel. And, um, you know, there's this comment uh, here. We were actively taught not to have boundaries. And that's so true. We are taught as children in this faith system that stranger, men who are complete strangers to us, get to ask us anything they want, and it's our responsibility to answer them. Yeah, These strangers can invite us into any space, one-on-one, and it's our responsibility to go with them. Yep. It is, it is taught that anytime someone asks us to do something, whether that stands in the way of our own intuition about what we can do and what we're capable of, we are taught that we are to do it anyway. Um, anytime uh, a person in authority does something wrong, we are taught to excuse it away and to say God was there anyway. And so when you take those four things alone and you go with, off into all the permutations of where those lead to, the degree of unsafe boundaries that exist in Mormonism and in other high-demand fundamentalist religions is so significant. And, and you don't even have a way to kind of reclaim that. It's only in the last couple of years that I have the grounding where I could stand up to the folks who were being unhealthy and me be able to set my boundaries and establish that they're the ones who aren't acting appropriate, even if they don't buy into it, I have the language for it now. And I can finally stand up for myself. And, and I'd like to think I'm, I'm strong willed enough to have done that all along. And I wasn't, I, I wasn't. And I don't think most people are until they, until they read enough Brene Brown until they sit with enough of second half of life kind of advice and begin to figure out like, how do I establish that my dad can't do the unhealthy things he does? How do I establish that my my sibling doesn't do the unhealthy thing they do? Um, early in our history, there's an example of home teaching where Joseph Smith uh, has his the very first like home teacher comes to see him, and he admonishes the home teacher to ask him, "Are you keeping the commandments? Are you you know?" 
and it becomes perfectly okay for strangers to delve into our personal life so as to establish for someone outside of us if we are worthy. Um, the the unhealthiness that exists in these kinds of mechanisms not only toxic, it's it's so extreme and you have no idea all the facets of it. Even today, I'm still kind of sitting with how toxic all of that is and learning learning more and more about it as I kind of dive into myself. Mm-hmm. And so Any when you're there? when you're a grown adult and trying to figure out what boundaries even mean and then how to set them and how to enforce them, that is so uncomfortable and foreign and scary and daunting because then you're faced with what are, what are, what's the other person going to think? Are they not going to like me? Um, and just being, being willing to sit with that, being willing, willing to accept it. it it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing that, um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like, we're just thrown into it. You, you need to learn otherwise, otherwise you will continue to have the guilt and the shame put on you from family or neighbors or church members. Le- learning boundaries is, I think, one of the core fundamental needs after stepping away from the church. Yeah. And setting boundaries, as you're pointing out, I mean, there's, there's risk to that too. You're when you set boundaries that the person you're setting them with doesn't want or isn't going to adhere to them, you're, you're going to lose at least some degree of that relationship. Maybe you no longer go over to their home. Maybe they now only get to call you on the phone when, when they have to, or have a desire to talk to you. Um, Boundaries have to have consequences. So when I say to somebody, you know, what what I perceive you're doing is this. I perceive that to be unhealthy. I'm not going to subject myself to being in space with you and allowing you to do that. So from here on out, um, our relationship hinges on you doing whatever it is that, you know, here's the healthy way that we're going to show up for each other. And if you can't, then it won't work. And in the situation I was telling you about, it was a matter of we both didn't have the same privilege in a shared space. And I told him point blank. I said, going forward, I will never subject myself to the possibility that this ever happens again. I said, the only way I will be in relationship with you is if anytime we are in a shared public space, I have as much privilege as you do. If you have the ability to talk about your life, then I have the ability to talk about mine. If you have the ability to tell me the good things about your faith, I have the ability to tell you the negative things about your faith because it was my faith too. I said, if you can't do that, then we cannot be in relationship. And this person basically said, I can't do that. And um, and, and they didn't say it in the healthiest of ways. And my response was, then you can fuck off. And we haven't we haven't spoken since. And I don't know if we'll ever speak again. Because I will never be in space with that person until they acknowledge that what they did was wrong. They know why they did it. They know what they did. And they've solved something on their end so that that behavior doesn't show up again. Otherwise, I can't be in space with you. And so I've lost that relationship. I didn't want to lose it. I want this person in my life. But they can't be. And so when folks set boundaries, 
it isn't always going to go well, but you're protecting yourself and you have a right to do that. Your thoughts? Yeah, 100%. It's, it's, I mean, what's so terrifying is the reality that you could jeopardize some of the relationships that you care about most with the people that you care about most close family. Um, sometimes they have the hardest time respecting boundaries and, and then you just have to ask yourself, am I willing to, um, live with the toxicity if, if that's the case, or, or am I willing to set, set the boundary and stick with it? It's, it's not an easy, not an easy choice either way. No, no. And every person should feel safe to make whatever decisions best for them, right? Some folks may say it is better for me if I endure some of this toxic behavior and maintain the relationship. And to those folks, as you're saying, more power to you. For other folks, they may say, look, I just can't, I can't do this and be okay. And so I'm going to establish boundaries at the risk of losing the relationship and, you know, honor, you know, kudos to them for taking that step. And so it really is an individual decision and there really isn't a right or wrong. Um, but I think it also should be said that every single human being has a right to healthy boundaries in their life if they want them. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, a uh, it, it's key, key to this faith transition thing, learning, learning that tool of setting boundaries. Yeah. And there are plenty, I was just going to acknowledge, um, the emancipate your mind podcast, uh, has an episode on establishing boundaries, actually a couple of them and, uh, emancipated, uh, coaching, which is Terry Hale's, uh, coaching site. There's just a document there that talks about how to set boundaries as well. Um, and you know, you're a therapist, any good therapist that you see can have these kinds of conversations with you as well and help you kind of work out you know, in real time, as you're kind of talking out loud, what amount of risk you're willing to take, what the, what the consequences can be, what, what the array of consequences can be by doing that, what you're enduring and taking on by not doing it. And, and obviously it, it, you'll know, you know, any good therapist is going to give you the safety to make that decision for yourself. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, the next one, let's see how to deal with emotional flooding from extended family. So the way that shows up. I was going to say, what's emotional flooding? Okay, good question. So um, uh, uh, going to a parent and saying, I've made a difficult decision to step away from the church. And then um, lots of crying and um, or anger um, to try to, I don't know, dissuade the person from doing what they're doing to show how how much they're hurting the other person. And, and that can be so difficult to deal with. I mean, if you go to your mom and she breaks down and starts crying, that's, you see, you see the hurt that you're causing. That's difficult. I, I had someone in our group and I mean, you'd like to think this kind of thing doesn't happen, but unfortunately it does. Um, she talked to a parent and, and said that she no longer believed in the church. And the parent said, I, and broke down crying, just utterly destroyed and said, I, I would have rather 
you come to me and said you had cancer, then then that you no longer believe in the church. And that just completely destroyed her that that the, the parent looked at it like that. And um I don't know, like that if you're a if you're a believing member, that is not that is not the response to have in those situations. Please, it's it's so so damaging. Yeah. And we think in your head, you think that's crazy. Like everybody knows you shouldn't say that, but how far away is that really from teachings in Mormonism that were reiterated over and over about, you know, you're better off to come home in a casket from your mission than to come home having lost your virtue. In other words, it's better that you die than break the commandments. It's better that you die than leave the church. Yeah. And so we as Mormons are taught to see the world that way, that it is better that our loved one have a horrible disease in a short life than live a life outside of the uh, tiny lens of Mormonism. And, and again, insiders don't get it, but once you're an outsider, it becomes crystal clear that it's ridiculous mm -hmm. to impose that the entire world live out of a Mormon lens. Yeah. And, yeah. and I just want to say like, if, if there are believing members listening to this, just, just trust that that's, that's just so beyond hurtful to, to be told something like that. Just try to step into a role of compassion and understanding. Yeah. I'd rather you have a disease that will kill you early than you be your authentic self and be something other than the idea of you that I have. That's the message. Mm -hmm. That's the message that's being given. And so sit with that and go like, do I really want to convey that? And the reality is you don't. Um, but again, we, we get it. Your system taught you to think that way. But if you sit with what it is you're actually saying, not the words, but what the idea that's being conveyed, it, it misses the mark horribly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, this flooding thing, you know, big waves of unhealthy expression, yelling, demanding, going too far in one's words. It, it really is a reflection of an internal chaos. The person who's flooding the other person, the, the person who's um, emotionally flooding somebody, it, it's their disturbance inside and they don't like the world the way it is. And so they're trying to manipulate people and things so that they can be comfortable again. But you don't have a right to take your internal chaos and to in any way lash out. And, and people may go like, come on, I was just crying too much. Yeah, but if, if you're crying so much in order to make the other person feel bad so that they conform back to the idea you have of them, you're out of line. And, and so um, recognize that anytime you're internal chaos has your ego going, I want to manipulate the world. You're probably not in unhealthy ground. Yes, completely. Yeah. Using, using emotions to manipulate it's, it's <clears throat> dangerous ground. Yeah. And I wanted to say, um, John Gottman, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, renowned psychologist and researcher, John Gottman said, 
Men are more prone to flooding than women. In fact, they experience it 80% more of the time than women do. Some theorize that the way we socialize men to shun their emotions leads to uh, those emotions eventually boiling over and spilling out of them in extreme ways. So maybe if you're a male listening to this, be a little more aware that that society has taught us in the midst of patriarchy, we've been taught that we're not allowed to be emotional. We have to be stoic. We have to keep our shit together. And um, they're, they're, that means that when things really do hit a tipping point, we're much more likely to lash out and try to manipulate the world to be something other than it is. And to be aware of that and, and maybe by being aware, we can catch ourselves a little more often. Um, anything else there? Otherwise we can go to the next one and you're muted too. Thank you. No, that's yep. perfect. Um, the next one, let's see, figuring out how to redefine spirituality and what spiritual experiences from the past mean. So, um, and I'm sure you see this a ton, like when people start to question things a little bit, they say, well, yeah, but I can't deny these spiritual experiences that I had. And um, does that mean that if I had those spiritual experiences, does that mean the church is true? Like, what? where do I go with that? Because I can't deny that I had these experiences. Does that mean that the church is true? Because that's what we were taught. Like, if you, if you feel the spirit, if you have those spiritual experiences, it's an indication that the church is true. That's, that's the spirit testifying to you of truth of the church. And so if you um, if you start to question things, what do those spiritual experiences mean? And then once you step away from the church, what where do you go with spirituality? What does that word even mean? So that's that's something that is so common that I've seen with people. Yeah. Um Mormonism, and obviously every unhealthy system, religious or not, is going to do this, but Mormonism hijacks normal uh, human phenomena and relabels it something else. And here's just one example, which is the um, elevation of motion. Jonathan Haidt is a social scientist, and he essentially did a bunch of research into this term, uh, elevation emotion. And if you look up elevation emotion on Google search, you'll come to a Wikipedia page as one of the top search results. And it's essentially that whenever a human being perceives inspiration in the world and perceives goodness in the world and sees something positive happening, the brain tells the body to feel a certain reaction, a certain response. And so the um, textbook definition of this is a warm feeling in your chest. Sounds like a burning in the bosom. Uh, it can be um, kind of enlightened form of thinking. So you feel inspired. Uh, and there are several other um, attached expressions of how this shows up. Now, it can be felt by any, and felt is, it can be and is felt by anyone in the world. And it doesn't even have to be a true event. They did research where they uh, had actors act out things happening 
And the folks who perceived that the event was really happening still felt this term elevation emotion. Mormonism comes along and takes you from the moment you're born and says, you know, doesn't tell you that's what the world says it is. It tells you, no, 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 this is the Holy Ghost. And so anytime you feel good, anytime you have a burning in your bosom, anytime you feel like you have an inspired thought, that's coming from God. That's the Holy Ghost talking to you. And because that term's been hijacked, and again, a thousand other terms have been hijacked too, because that term has been hijacked, you're going to see it through a certain lens, but it's not the reality of it. And, and so when you are taking a spiritual experience in Mormonism, most spiritual experiences in Mormonism fall into that mundane range of feeling a tingling sensation or a or my hair stood up on the back of my neck or my arm, or I just felt really good inside. And we're taught to say that's the Holy Ghost, when in reality, that's a normal human thing that our brain communicates to our body to feel when certain events are happening. And, and they're there because they have assisted human beings uh, in the species and being perpetuated over hundreds of thousands of years. And so the, the little spiritual experiences probably have pretty secular, solid explanations for them. And then even the ones that feel really supernatural, the further I've gotten away from them, I just don't feel capable anymore of assigning Mormonism as the impetus behind those things happening. They were, they were something else. And those kinds of things continue to happen. We've had, um, we've had things happen in the modern moment where if I was in Mormonism, I would have stood up on fast and testimony Sunday and bore testimony of how God works in my life. Meanwhile, I'm working to help people get enough information that they might decide to leave the church. And those same kinds of things happen in that paradigm for me too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I certainly have lots of experiences regularly where like if I had still been a believing member, I would have, I would have said, it's a good thing I've been paying my tithing because that that thing just happened yeah. or or that this blessing I, I had this intuition and that it was it was the Holy Ghost and the, those things still happen to me all the time but if I if I if I were in the church I would have attributed that to the spirit or a testimony building thing yeah yeah um okay the next one let's see um feeling like i will never be enough recovering from purity culture so the the purity culture just um keeping keeping yourself pure don't be the what is it the chewed up piece of gum um yeah. and cupcake. the cupcake and and if you if you do um make a mistake or or do something that contradicts um what you were taught all growing up um there's just that that sense that i'm i'm not enough i'll never be enough and i i think that's kind of a, a mode that the church runs on is there's always more you can do there's there in in a sense it really is never enough there's there's always more more to do, more scriptures to read, but doing better with home teaching. Um, it, I mean, there's always more. 
Yeah, you never get to feel like the very person you are in this moment is ever good enough. There's always something more to do, something to repent of, some progress to be made, some, you know, some other task to be done, some other meeting to go to, some other appointment to keep. It it just it never stops. And so you you feel there's a lot of self-loathing. You feel like you're just never going to get there. Instead of um, instead of realizing that I am enough right now. I I have worth regardless of what I do or don't do. I I have internal worth. It it isn't dependent on what I do or don't do. Yeah. Yeah, you just are. Um what helped me a bunch with this was secular Buddhism and the the instruction from various people. And when I say secular Buddhism, I, I don't mean any religion really at all. I just mean the wisdom that comes out of Eastern thought, this idea of being present, um, being aware, uh, sitting with kind of where your place is in the universe. Um, it has been deeply helpful to me to go like, Hey, I'm, I'm really good enough right here. Like this is the best I can do in this moment. Why should I or anyone else expect me to do anything different? This is who I am. And um, it, it doesn't mean that you can't grow or get better at being a human being because, you know, just this morning, my wife and I are uh, went to uh, the rec center and we're doing our, our little workout, walking around, and we're both listening to Brene Brown. And her introduction to her newest book is like 43 minutes long on Audible. Yeah. Yeah, And we got done with the introduction and all of a sudden you hear that voice go, chapter one. Uh -huh. My wife and I look at each other like, was that just an introduction? And it right. was 43 minutes. Right. And we were like, man, there's enough there for us and our friends to get together and talk for three hours. Seriously. So by listening to things, and, and I would call Brene Brown a secular Buddhist, like she's pulling from that kind of Eastern, that Eastern wisdom. Um. When you sit and listen to wisdom, like real wisdom, it really does help you to slow down and sense like, hey, you really are doing amazing in this moment with all the tools you have. And you can do whatever you do today will benefit you tomorrow. So if you add a book to what you're doing today, you now have a new set of tools and experiences to draw from. And you'll continually get better, not because you could have done better, but because by having more tools in your tool bag, you just will be a different person tomorrow than you were today. And that's been deeply helpful to me. Can I ask you, Corey, like what's been, what's been things that have helped you sense your self-worth coming out of a system that constantly told you you weren't worthy? I, as you were talking, it, it made me think of that previous issue about how to redefine spirituality and I guess I, there is still part of my brain that I just don't, I don't like the word spirituality because it's been tied to a certain definition for 40 years of my life. And, but then I, I read the book, The Untethered Soul and, um, and he talked about Michael spirituality Singer. and, and so like what you're talking about right now with with being present and in the moment, like that's, that's his definition of spirituality. And I'm like, what, what are you even talking about? That that's spirituality. Well, yeah, it, what's awesome. What's awesome is that we have the opportunity 
to define that word however we want to define it instead of seeing it from just this narrow narrow perspective so so i totally agree with what you're saying um going along with secular buddhism or Brene brown um or the untethered soul like just just letting go of the past or letting go of future expectations obsessing about the future or whatever like just being present in the moment that's really hard and yet I mean, I I think that's that's where I find worth and happiness and growth. So, yeah, that I like that def definition of spirituality way better. Yeah, I I wrote down Michael Singer, the author I think of the Untethered yep, Soul. You're right. And so I put down Brene Brown, Eckhart Tolle, uh, Michael Singer, Jack yes. Cornfield. Yes. Um, it really it really has been like, look, uh, I was taught in Mormonism that these top fifteen guys are the smartest guys on the planet. These are the guys that have the real truth. I ought to always look to them to find wisdom and advice. And the reality was when I let those 15 guys go and I went out into the world looking for wisdom, I found it in bundles. Mm -hmm. And it, it almost was like, oh my goodness, how did I believe those guys had it when there is so much real good uh, advice and wisdom and and ways in which to approach being a human, having a human experience out in the world. Um, even just listening to like Joe Rogan's podcast or something, there, mm -hmm. there are moments where conversations are so deep and so enlightening um, that, that you, you don't know how you didn't pay attention all along. And, and folks will come up and they'll say, Bill, I feel so much shame. Like here I am, I'm 52 years old and I'm just finally figuring it out. And my point to them is always like, Hey, most people don't figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, most people stay in their system, believing it till their last breath, regardless of what age it took you. The fact that you woke up, the fact that you opened your eyes and sensed that this thing wasn't telling you the truth, like Terrell Givens and Marlon Jensen are right. It is our best and brightest. Uh, the folks that, that wake up to this thing and deconstruct it. Um, and, and so people shouldn't beat themselves up because it happened at a certain age. In reality, look in the mirror and be grateful that you valued truth and truth seeking and you were willing to take the risk of losing your community in, in order to be honest to yourself. I love it. Um, yeah. I had people in, in my group say, a, a couple people I remember saying that Brene Brown is their new prophet. And I thought I'd, I'd sustain her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's got more in her pinky, right? Than, than I got yeah. in ten general conferences. Uh, you know? Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. Um, all right. So, what's the next one? Okay. Um, okay. Struggling with how, in the past, I've let other people determine my worthiness instead of knowing that I have unconditional worth. So, kind of like we talked about earlier. I mean, I just, uh, I, I have a hard time with. Um, I don't know, going into a bishop's office and, and a, the, this guy sitting across from us determining our worth. And I don't know, something just doesn't feel right about that. So um, I think it's, I think it's coming to recognize that we have, we have automatic self-worth. It's, 
it's it's just there yeah it would take hours to expound on this but i'll just throw a little idea out that i think folks can maybe sit with if you just get up one morning and just sit with this thought for 20 minutes but western religion and i i totally get it some western religion actually came from the east but um the monotheistic religions islam judaism christianity there are lots of teachings in those three that suggest that human beings were sent into the world um that that jesus came into the world and what eastern thought seems to want to indicate is that we came out from the world that the world is us um eckhart tolle said that uh you are the universe expressing yourself as a human for a little while <laughs> and when i sit and think about what's happened over 13 point something billion years the reality is that everything on the planet right now is an outgrowth of what was there originally and hence we humans think we're separate we we sit inside our heads and go no i'm bill and that's corey and our egos allow us to tell that story but the reality is the the planet is a tree and we're the leaves on the tree and we are the tree in the same way that the leaves are part of the tree and and if people sit with that for a bit and you just realize like you are the universe having this consciousness at this given moment there's something that is in that idea at least for me that helped me to sense like my worth is simply i'm just an expression of the universe right here in this you know in this skin suit and and you're doing it over there in yours mm -hmm. and and it really isn't about like which one of us is better or which one of us is uh this or that which one of us can play an instrument which i know you play piano i can't play piano for nothing um we all have different gifts and abilities and again it isn't we it's the, the universe expressing itself as each of us has those things yeah and and maybe spending some time kind of in that that rabbit hole which it can be too mm -hmm. will take you out of some of the negative intrusive thoughts of mormonism yeah i think the people that you mentioned eckhart tolle Brene, michael singer that those those ones will give you a definite shift on how you see those things yeah and this person here said what is real wisdom it's the trust thing issue i'm struggling with um anytime somebody's telling you that the answer is outside of you like you have to trust me i've got the answers for you i think there there's something wrong there i think you know real wisdom when somebody teaches you to look inside yourself you know maybe wrestle with a concept wrestle with a thing think think a certain kind of thought for a moment and meditate upon it or contemplate on it but at the end of the day go inside of yourself and figure out what it is that's going on anytime someone tells you they have the answers rather than telling you the answers are already inside you I'm really cautious of those people. And I, I would suggest some degree of skepticism. When I read Brene Brown, Eckhart Tolle, uh, Michael Singer, Jack Kornfield, um, and there's thousands of others. When I read what I consider to be real wisdom, it, it helps me look inward and I start making internal changes 
without having to trust some outside voice. In other words, Brene Brown's brilliant. She shares the data in a way that no one else does. She gives you the language that no one else has given you up to this moment. And yet she's still not saying like, I'm the expert. She's saying, I'm just as messy at this as you are. Let's, let's start pulling in new tools. Let's go inside and let's figure out how to be better human beings. Um, it, it is an internal wrestle. It's not an outside thing. Any thoughts there? I mean, I, I think that for me personally, I just have more trust and respect when someone says, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure stuff out. This is what's worked for me. This is what has definitely not worked for me instead of, um, do it this way. I have all the answers. And if you don't, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. All right. The next one. Um, this person struggled with toxic perfectionism. We talked a little bit about that. They said both personally and in my family, we were a mess on the inside, but needed to look perfect on the outside. So, I mean, sometimes there's abuse going on in the house and, but, but at church, everyone's looking good, but, but also just, you don't know when you're sitting at church, if the person next to you is maybe questioning things or struggling with something because it's not safe to show that. And so on the, on the outside, you, you have to look a certain way, but it's, it's not always an indication of what's going on inside. So, so working past that perfectionism, um, it's, it's a, it's a tough thing. It, it seems to me as though therapy really might be the, I don't want to say the solution, but a huge ingredient in coming to a solution in this point. Cause what you're basically saying is that myself and the folks around me were operating unhealthy. Maybe we've got some shadows we don't even know about and we're hurting each other. And it feels like at this point, you really do need an objective unbiased voice who can help point you to maybe some of your blind spots. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think at least in my life and what I think works for others, it feels as though therapy would be a big part of kind of beginning to resolve this, this particular issue. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think just that outside perspective, um, helping to point out some of those blind spots is so helpful for all of us. Yeah. The things that kind of go into this, you, you said toxic perfectionism, both personally and in my family, we were a mess on the inside, but needed to look perfect on the outside. This affects authenticity, vulnerability, transparency, trauma, fitting in versus belonging, boundaries, accountability to yourself regarding your own shadows. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there's so much there that you're not going to just sit in a one hour conversation and work through that. It, it's going to take you probably years of sitting down with somebody on a regular basis and working through how all that got put in there and beginning to kind of untangle it and look at each piece and figure out what's going on. Yeah. What I, I, I have to throw in how grateful I am for people like you and, and a friend group where, yes, I think therapy is so important to get that outside perspective. And also I'm so grateful for a friend group where, I feel safe to talk about the messy things and, and know that I, 
that these friends that you are are safe and trusted and will will help and and i think that my friends feel the same way with the rest of us where it's safe and and just finding that sense of community where i it's different than when i sat in elders quorum where i i kind of didn't feel like i could always say what i was thinking and feeling versus to have a group of friends now where we can sit with the messiness and help each other through hard times it, i'm just so grateful for that there have been so many instances in the last i don't know two months where a friend has shared with me what they would have thought was not allowed to be shared before with people in in that inside the system because you're not allowed to say the hard things. You're not allowed to talk about where your life isn't good. When people say, hey, how are you? Somebody said the other day in, in one of these conversations, they said, you know, in the real world, when I go out and someone says, hey, how are you doing? Only two answers are acceptable. Good, which means I'm okay or I'm good, or okay, which means I'm not doing well, but I'm not allowed to tell you. And the moment you start telling people that you're having a hard day, generally speaking, people stop listening. And as you're pointing out, one of the secret sauces here is to find people that you that really want you to be you. Like, I want to see your messiness. I want to see your shadows. Like, you can show up just the way you are. And suddenly it becomes safe to tell people like, hey, me and my spouse aren't getting along today. Or, hey, uh, we've got this medical thing going on and I'm just, I'm all depressed about it. And, and then all of a sudden, an hour conversation ensues about how life is hard and people are sitting with you in it. Nobody's trying to fix it for you and nobody's trying to avoid the conversation or step away from you. Um, you know, Brene always talks about empathy and sympathy and sympathy is you fall into a hole and sympathy is the guy, instead of coming to really help you, he throws a sandwich down and stands up top and goes, that's got to really suck over there. Mm -hmm. And when she said that about the sandwich, in Mormonism, I thought of a casserole. Like we drop a casserole off at your front door and go, good luck with that. Uh, wow. I hope it gets better wow. and we leave, right? And, and the reality is what you need is someone to come in and sit down and go, you tell me what you're feeling and thinking and I'm going to sit right here and I'm not going anywhere and I'm going to hold that with you. I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to fix it, but I'm going to sit right here with you and hold it with you for a while. Yeah. And uh, it's such a difference. And as you point out, in our friend group, that seems to be there. Like I'm just in my head going over, you know, the folks we we hang out with, and it becomes really safe to go. I'm I feel like shit today, and it's not a good day. Well, and nobody short, tries to get away. No, not at all. Shortly after we left the church, I I don't know if you even remember this, but it was at your house where it it somehow came up that after after leaving the church, I experienced something I had never experienced before. I felt depression myself and it's like, this is what's going on. And, and it was, um, it was at your house with that group of friends when I felt safe for the first time to talk about that and then started therapy myself and worked through stuff and kind of came out the other side to, to be where I'm at now to help other people. But it's just, um, just such a liberating weight off of your shoulders to to be able to say whatever's on your mind and feel safe doing it whether that's with a, a friend or a spouse or a therapist however that looks 
I just can't, I can't overemphasize how liberating it feels to just put voice to it. Yeah. And the, not this statement here, but I think it was this gentleman was asking, you know, if I don't have that close knit community, what, what can I do? And, and I'll just, I'll say that some of us are quirky. And in fact, often it is the quirky among us who deconstruct Mormonism sooner because they already recognize they don't fit in and they're already dealing with uh, the pain and hurt that comes from not fitting in in other places in their life. And so now it's happening in Mormonism and they can begin to see that they really don't belong here. And, and so they may deconstruct it at an earlier age. And some of us are quirky and it's really a struggle to make friends and to build community. And um, so for folks who are able, like if you can find like-minded folks in, you know, face-to-face kind of friendship groups where you go to dinner together, you hang out at each other's house together, great. But for those who aren't able to get to that, there are um, social groups on, you know, Facebook or different discussion forums. And those places seem to be offering uh, a virtual community that seems to work for a lot of people. Uh, I think even just finding voices, say you pick up a book and you read Brene Brown and you go like, man, she's speaking to my soul. She Mm -hmm. is representing the things I'm thinking about. Even finding a good book with some author that you relate to can also serve that purpose. You pointed out again, therapy Regardless of how you get it, I think every human being needs a space where they can say the hard things and nobody's going to throw shame and judgment back, but instead go like, hey, I may not do it just like you, but I experience similar things and damn, aren't they hard? Yeah. Um, That seems to be what people need. And I think there are other places to get that. Yeah, for sure. Um, But again, I think an in-person community does that best, but the world isn't perfect and we all don't have access to that. And so you have to find as much of it in various places as you can. Um, Anything else there? Otherwise you can go ahead with the next one. I'll go to the next dealing with the fact that I'm disappointing others. I mean, that is, that is a lot of weight to carry, to feel, to feel like what you're doing is making you a disappointment to the people you care about most. That's so heavy, so heavy to hold. Yeah. Dealing with the fact I'm disappointing others. You really have two choices in these moments. You, um, you can compromise yourself and you can help others feel safe and feel comfortable, but at the expense of having to sit in the discomfort and pain of pretending to be the person that you believe they need you to be or and to be an idea of yourself rather than be you, hence fitting in, right? Fitting in is compromising. Or uh, we can choose to be our authentic self, uh, which on one end will feel freeing and congruent, like our insides and our outsides will match, so we will feel stable and on solid ground, um, but at the risk of feeling shame from others, inability to allow diversity, and the risk of losing relationships where they were only willing to love an idea of you and not love the actual you. And and it's not perfect. Like it doesn't always go well. We talked about this same idea earlier. Um, But I'll say this, and and I see this in you guys too. 
um, when you show up willing to be a large chunk of your authentic self, there is a certain weight you've been carrying around that goes away. And there will be people maybe in the world who will mock you, shame you, uh, you know, emotionally flood you, manipulate you, um, express disappointment in you, distance themselves from you. But you're going to have to make peace with the fact that they really didn't like you anyway. They only liked you so long as you pretended to be something you weren't, so long as you pretended to be the idea they held of you. And I just don't, again, you get to do it as long as you want to. I, I'm not here to say you shouldn't do it, but I will say at some point, at least consider the value in being you and letting the chips fall where they may. And in my life, I've done that to a large extent. And there are lots of people who won't be in my space, but the people that are willing to accept me and be in my space it's just much better. It's, it feels better and it, it feels lighter and I feel more content um, being me. A any thoughts there? Gosh, you, you worded it so perfectly. And, and I, I hope it's okay. I want to tie it into just this last thing on this list of learning yes. how to be authentic. And, and a lot of people ask like, what, do, what does that even mean? How, how do I be authentic? And I think what you, what you talked about, like, I, I see authenticity as um, it, being willing to talk about the good, the bad, the hard, the ugly, the, um, it, it's, it's just about being real. And, and just being realistic that that concept is kind of foreign to a lot of people stepping away from high demand religion where you you need to look a certain way and and talk a certain way and believe a certain way and then to to be kind of out on your own exposed in the light like and then just having the courage to um i don't know be be open and real with how you're how you're feeling, what you're struggling with, all of those things. I just think that that vulnerability and authenticity is what connects us to each other. Like we can we can tell when someone is being fake or inauthentic or only only showing the good, and that that's not what that's not what attracts us to people. That's not what connects us. And so I just found time and time and time again over over the last couple of years like doing the work myself that that vulnerability and authenticity is what connects us to people and the secrecy is what invites shame shame and guilt so i i just i it my experience has been like it's been such a powerful thing that i almost shake my head like wow, I really wish I could have learned this lesson a whole lot earlier, that vulnerability invites connection, secrecy invites shame. I'll take the connection. Yeah, every time, huh? Um, it, again, even in, say, our friendship group, there still are boundaries and there still are ways in which if, if you're too different 
maybe it doesn't fit well. And so some folks are on the outside looking in. It, it, I, I wish there was a way that we all could accept the human being next to us completely for the way they are. And even in the healthiest of groups, that's not exactly possible. And, and some folks are different to the degree that their differences, while they have a right to their difference, in space with other people, it may cause other people trauma or damage or hurt. So we're all still trying to negotiate this. In other words, when I say like, oh, my friends all think differently. Well, we're all white. We're all, we all have certain similarities that have attracted us to each other. And so even in a, a healthy friend group like we have, there's still, there's still rules and boundaries and lines. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we ought to figure out ways to be more inclusive. And I don't know that there's a perfect process for that. Um, th this idea that, that you're going to disappoint others, the reality is you're just always going to disappoint others. Right. And, and the moment you, yeah. And the moment you stop, compromising yourself in an effort to please everyone, which you will never do anyway. Right. You may have less people who are attracted to your personality that will be in space with you, but it's just going to feel better if you can find it. Totally. Um, yeah. Totally. Um, can I just, we've got, please. Can I just like, close that even though that's the end of the list at at, at this group session um i just um I, I just had this like sense as we finished this list gosh there is a lot of pain sitting in this group right now there's there's so much hurt and um I don't know. Some I notice myself feeling angry sometimes that that stepping away from the church can cause so much pain. I, I find myself feeling angry at the church sometimes that people are hurting so much because of this. And um, yeah, I think it's it's just such a it's it's a courageous act that that we're taking to whether that's to question the church or to step away or to have that hard hard conversation with parents it, it's just i don't know it, it's an act of courage and i think we we all deserve some self-compassion because this is this is a hard thing and and it's hard to different degrees for people maybe depending on how deeply in they were or how supportive or unsupportive their family is but either way it's just it's a, it's an act of courage. Yeah. I lost my mom three years ago to cancer. She was 59 years old and deconstructing and leaving Mormonism was harder. Yeah. And, and that's not to take anything away. My mom was incredible. I love my mom to death. I think that was as hard as it was supposed to be like, and still is. Like that was difficult and it feels to me like it was, it was the difficulty that it, that it should have been. Like that's what death of somebody you love should have felt like. Mm -hmm. And yet when I juxtapose it against losing my faith, my identity, my community, the fear of losing relationships, the, 
strain of trying to reorganize my life and find meaning again in all of its facets because the meaning I was handed about all those things turned out not to be real. There doesn't, there's such a gap between the difficulties like this was Mm -hmm. leaving Mormonism was way more difficult and and people don't get that. They think you did the easy thing. In reality, you might've done the hardest thing you've ever done. Right. And not that I, I assume I can speak for you here. Not that we regret, at least for me, and I think for you in our conversations, I can say this too. I don't regret it for a solitary Mm -hmm. second. Like my life is really, I I just, I'm, I'm happy. I, I don't regret it. And also there's some mud to wade through on the other side to, to get to that point. People will say, do you wish you did anything differently? And I actually go, no, because if I did something different, I don't know if I'd be here in this moment. And I really like me. I like my life. I like my friends. I like my marriage. I like all the things that are going on. Again, not everybody has that experience. Some people are dealing with stuff that they are in this moment feeling hopeless and finding no meaning in life. I grant that. Right. I am so thrilled because, because, you and I are trying to combat this story that while we're sharing how hard it was, we what we perceive is the believers in the background going, well, you should have stayed. Right. You should have stayed. And, and, and the reality is, has, no. That's not it at, at all. It's, no. it's it's giving space to, it's it's really hard. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really hard. And also, I don't regret it for a second. I'm, I'm happier. I'm happier on the other side of things. Um, it's kind of weird. I think anyone who who's in this position that we're in can say, "I'm I'm happier," and also it was it was depressing sometimes, or yeah. angering, or sad. Like it's it's weird how those things can be true at the same time, but it's it's true. You can be depressed and happy at the same time. Weird. I don't know but it's, yeah. it's a reality. Uh, one little thought here on the vulnerability piece. First off, folks are, folks are wondering like, do I keep pretending to be the idea people hold or do I be vulnerable? And I would say you do both. You, one thing I learned reading Brene Brown is you really test waters. You really lean into like, is this person able to hold my story sacred? Is this person uh, the kind of person who's going to give me shame or judgment? I don't, I don't have, I'm not responsible to give everybody my vulnerability. I, I pick and choose spots where it feels healthy and appropriate. And then um, the second thing, which Brene also says, is to take small risk. Like maybe you perceive this person's probably going to handle my story in a sacred way, but I'm not 100% sure, but I'm 93% sure. And so I'm going to test it. I'm going to see if that works. And I think what you find when you, methodically expose yourself is that generally speaking, you've made good guesses about who can hold your story sacred and who won't. And most of the time it turns out being validating and um, giving content and giving fulfillment in your life because most people handle it pretty well. Yeah. And I people engage is handling it well. Totally. 
as a yeah. therapist, I like to find those things to kind of nudge people out of their comfort zone and do the hard things. And, and a lot of times people find that we make, we make up in our heads what's going to happen and it's so much worse than reality. So I'm, I'm all for taking those risks and taking chances and being authentic. And also, like you said, like not, not everyone is safe to hear your whole story. In the, the thing we haven't said, but I think maybe most important to people in this gap of space, right? Like Mormonism gives you all the answers. It works until it doesn't. You, you deconstruct most of your system prior to rebuilding whatever the new side of life looks like. And there's that gap in between, which is one of the hardest things you'll ever do because you don't really have a way to find meaning in the world. You're, you're really renegotiating everything. You're trying to learn who you are. And in that gap, it feels hopeless. And it feels like I can't do this. This is going to, this is really hard and it's going to last forever. And the reality is probably the, the greatest tip we can give people is just time. I, I think every one of the folks who express their dark night of the soul if you come back to them five years later, 93% of them, 95% of them have reoriented themselves to the universe and the world around them and have found meaning again. And if you can just do the work, meaning wrestling, thinking, contemplating, stretching yourself, trying to find people who can hold space for you, and then just give it time, some years later, life begins to be bright again. Um, and I think, again, not everyone, and I feel horrible for the folks that life isn't going better. But when we did a survey down here in Southern Utah and we asked folks what they felt or how their mindset was now compared to when they were in, and it was like 90-something percent, 93% or so, that reported being happier now Um than when they were in. And, and so I just simply say like time does do some magic itself. I totally agree. I definitely see, I, I definitely see the same thing. I, I feel like I'm a different person now than I was one year ago, four years ago. Yeah. It's, it's doing the work. All right. So this second list, tell us about this one and we'll just kind of quickly go through these. Sure. So on the very last day of the group, I asked the participants what they wish that believing members knew about a faith crisis. I loved these responses. Um, someone said, we absolutely did not leave because we want to sin. Um, there's a whole, so many more reasons that people leave. It's not that we want to sin. Leaving the church isn't taking the easy way out. If you knew what I've experienced, you'd realize that leaving the church is taking the gut-wrenching way out. Um, I I was told that from a friend myself, like you're taking the easy way out when it gets hard. And I, I said, if you had any idea what I've experienced, I promise you would not say I'm taking the easy way. Um, this I thought this response was unique. What's one thing that you want believing members to know about a faith crisis? Someone said, you aren't far from one. No, uh, you are Okay, that's 
interesting. So they said faithful members, um, faithful members may suddenly and unexpectedly face a faith crisis themselves when they discover troubling aspects of church history. So, I mean, a lot of times it's the the most valiant faithful members who, when they come across certain things, that shelf can crash pretty quick. That was definitely the case for me. I would not have seen this coming in a million years. I, I have heard from so many people still in regarding the folks that make up the listenership of this of this podcast that the the believers who are still in have said on multiple occasions that was the guy I or that was the woman I thought never would lose their testimony because it often happens to the person who takes Mormonism the most seriously. Mm -hmm. The folks who were both feet in, all in, those are the folks who, when they see the discrepancy between what they expected Mormonism to be and what it actually is, they're the ones who experience the most uh, strained fracture. Yeah, that's yeah. the case for me. Yeah. Um, one person said, when you leave, it's not that you've lost yourself. You've actually found yourself. Loved that yeah. perspective. Um, I wish they knew how much I want to talk about it. I want them to know because I wish I knew five years ago. And and it really goes back to what you were saying earlier. Like, um, it's in a lot of places, it's okay for believing members to talk about their beliefs, but it's not okay, okay for people who've left to talk about their beliefs. And what I see most consistently is that that topic is so um, frightening that believing members or family members don't even ask. They don't want to know. It's way too scary. They don't want to risk their faith crumbling. And so they won't even ask. And um, we, we perceive as the person becoming disaffected or having lost or losing belief, we perceive that you, the believer, are really uncomfortable making space for us to tell our story. Yeah. And so it may look to you like we don't want to talk about it. As you're pointing out, we would love if you asked us yes. what's going on. We would love if you sat down and said, hey, I've got two hours set aside. I'd really like to know what your faith journeys look like. And I'd really like to know what it was you ran into. And and to make space for that person to share with you how hard this has all been and what they've learned and why they can't stay. And the only reason they're not saying that is because they can tell from your body language, your words, uh, the, the behaviors on your end that you're scared to death to hear it. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you're not going to make a safe space for it to be heard. Yeah. They are begging to tell you their story. I've experienced that. I've gone to my in-laws on multiple occasions and said, I really would like you to understand where I'm coming from. And they just, they can't. Right. And so at some point I go like, oh, I, I they're not going to let me. So I just have to, I just have to be quiet and stay away. Yep. I'm not allowed to tell my story. Yeah. If, yeah. if someone said what you said, just tell, tell me about your story. That would mean the world yeah. to someone that would be Amen. so powerful. Yeah. Amen. Um, okay. So let's go to the next one. Um, my faith crisis is a spiritual experience. It's not about knowing all the answers, 
It's about being able to ask the questions. Such a cool perspective, like just being able to, mm. I mean, when I was in the church, I, I found comfort in knowing all the answers. And now I love not knowing the answers. I, I love exploring and, and finding what works for me. It's, it's, it's cool. Inside um, the questions weren't even permitted. Yeah. Yeah. And now I can ask the questions. Yeah. Um, someone said they, they wish that members knew that we're still the same people. Someone else yeah. said, I think it's more accurate to say that the church is facing a truth crisis instead of saying I've had a faith crisis. Mm. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, the, it, it is only a faith crisis because the story you were given didn't hold up because the church is having a truth crisis. The individual had to face the way they put it all together, not no longer working. Right. So now they're having a faith crisis because the church had a truth crisis. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. This is a huge one. The threats and scare tactics we were told about what happens when you leave are not accurate. No. So Simon's writer didn't leave because his name was spelled wrong. Thomas yeah. Marsh didn't leave over milk and strippings. Go read the history folks. And the, the, the threat that you're going to be so unhappy when you leave. I mean, I, like we've talked about granted there's there's hard things about leaving but the vast majority of people feel much more happy and whole after leaving and um, grateful that they did yeah someone said i feel very alone and isolated i'm not able to speak my truth but i have to listen to my family members speak their truth it's not safe for me to talk about what my beliefs or what i've learned about the church but it's okay for my family to repeatedly bear their testimony to me. We understand both. Pers it, they were saying that people who've left the church understand both perspectives because we were once faithful members of the church, but they can't understand our perspective because they haven't been here. So, yeah, it is a blind spot and they act as though there's a, a superiority of perspective on their end and reality they're the ones who have a deep blind spot, not knowing what both paths look like. Yeah. Yeah. We understand the other side. We've, we lived it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of times there's the perception of the angry ex Mormon. And I totally get that. I totally understand where it's coming from. This person said the angry ex Mormon comes from recognizing that we have experienced trauma. That's powerful. Um, Someone said, I want to say, if you think it's been hard for you, imagine how hard it's been for me becoming the disappointment of the family. Yeah. Ouch. That's, that's a lot of weight. Um, yeah. And this last one, I want to be loved by my family. I don't want to hear God still loves you. I want to hear I love you. Yeah. Again, we talked about how people want, to be able to tell their story. And the reason they're not is because they don't feel safe. And the yeah. believer just perceives they don't want to share their story. There's something similar going on here. Your loved one, you're telling your loved one, you're, you're sending them the Enzyme magazine, which I think is now the Liahona again, but you're sending your loved one a church periodical or you're putting your loved one's name on a temple roll, or you're saying your prayers at night by your bedside, asking God to bring your loved one back in. And if you want to do more good, for your loved one, um, 
find a way to be in physical space with them and look them in the eye and say, I, I know things have changed, but I want you to know that that doesn't matter. I love you and I love you and accept you just today, just the same as what I did before all that happened. Yeah. Um, that's the message. I, yeah, I don't want to hear God loves me. Like regardless, I need to hear that folks that I love and care about accept me for being honest to my own journey and mm -hmm. being, um, having integrity in my brain telling me these things don't add up. So I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to pretend I'm going to live my best life. And it isn't the way you wish I was living it. Um, yeah. I've got a bunch of sirens now, but um, to have your loved ones go like, I love you. And there's no conditions on that. It's not yep. conditional. Yep. Um, that's really what every doubter is begging for. Every person who's deconstructed, every person who's become disaffected. They want to hear that they still have value, even though their brain says they can't do it the way they used to. Yeah. I, ha I had someone in the group say that their, their parents said, I, I still love you. And, and that word still um, bugged her a little bit. And she thought, wait, was that in question whether you would still love me or not if I left the church? And so I think you, I think the way that you put it was so perfect. Like, I love you no matter what. My love for you goes way beyond where you sit for a couple hours on Sunday or what your beliefs are. Like, I love you unconditionally no matter what. And I've had people tell me they love me and also convey that they are disappointed that I don't fit in the box they want me to fit in. And I'll, I'll just say that that's not the same message we're talking about. No. That is conditional love. You're claiming to love somebody, but you're expressing that really you wish they were something else. Yeah. And, and unconditional love is I love you just the way you are. Yep. Meaning you get to walk your journey the way you do. And I don't feel any need to put distance in our relationship. That's huge. Okay. Well, folks, if you are in Southern Utah and uh, you're looking for somebody who can hold space with you at talking about these kinds of things, uh, Corey, where can people get in touch with, uh, uh, your services as a therapist and the things that you do to help folks? Um, probably my website, brightwaytherapy.com would be best. I, I can do telehealth stuff for across the state of Utah. Um, yeah. Brightway therapy. I'm just going to try to find the, the site really quick and stick it in the comments for folks. We've got a lot of people down here. Uh, in Southern Utah, obviously a large Mormon population. Uh, there certainly are folks here that, that need help. And I, I know you've done groups before that have um, gone well. I know you're doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one therapy and coaching. Uh, so I just put it in the comments, brightwaytherapy.com. And uh, I, I can just tell you, I know Corey well enough to know that you're, you can be vulnerable. You can talk about the hard things um, I've never been in a conversation with you, Corey, where I felt shame, uh, or judgment. Uh, I've always felt you listening and, uh, I've always felt you make space for me to be me. And, uh, and that means a lot. And so I appreciate you. And, uh, if anybody does need some help, 
I can certainly vouch that Corey would be uh, a great place to to start to work out and process some of these things. A, a faith crisis is hard. And, and I think all too often Mormonism scares people by pointing to that window of the dark night of the soul and saying, look, it all goes south. You don't want that to happen. And as you and I are talking about it, it really is hard, but it also, it also came with tons of growth and um, positive things that happened too. Yeah. And yeah, so it's, it's been amazing as well. I, again, I wouldn't trade any of it for the world. I'd do it exactly the same way. Same. All over again. Same. So, Perfect. Uh, Corey, thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to hang out with you. I'm sure it'll be sometime in the next seven to 10 days. We'll see each other again. It seems that that's about what it is, but yeah, 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 you're very welcome. And thank you for all you do. And uh, folks, I hope you got some benefit out of this. Um, We, we really do. We really are trying to help folks um, in these conversations to deal with deconstructing and reconstructing in and out of Mormonism. So I hope this was beneficial. Otherwise, everybody have a great day, and uh, we will talk to all of you uh, some other time. Take it easy, Corey. Thanks, Bill. See you soon.